In between the beginning and end of life, there is creation. And in between the beginning and end of creation, there is time for the Forecast Podcast. Welcome. I'm your ever-intrepid host, Sophie O. My guest on this episode is Jack X. Proctor, a photographer, artist, grip truck builder, and ecosexual extraordinaire. I love Jack's spirit. They're at once both laid back and passionate, and getting to talk to them was such a joy. I hope it's a joy to listen to as well. Here's what they had to say. And I'm here with Jack X. Proctor. How you doing today, Jack? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Awesome. I'm also doing well. It's really good to meet you. You as well. Thank you. And I talked to Farida beforehand. You know Farida Amar from Forecast. Yeah, I've met her a few times. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. <laughs> and she gave me like a quick rundown on you, but like just enough that I still don't know you entirely. Terrifying. No, 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 no. All good things, all good things. She says you are a photographer and a film artist, and you create grip trucks with your partner. You build grip trucks. Which yeah. I would know how to. Do, I don't know how to build a grip truck, so that's amazing. And yeah, you know, I don't either. I'm more there for more. Okay. People like, hey, you're doing it wrong. Oh no! How did you even get no. into that in the first place? I've been doing like assisting film work um, since I was 17, mm-hmm. um, but my partner runs a business that I am, you know, I help out where I, I can. Mm-hmm. And he, so he builds trucks out beautifully and um, he, yeah, so we, we do that together and where I try to help out as much as I can, but I am definitely more tangential part of that situation i mean still it's i get i don't know anyone who just like builds trucks in their spare time so like, just, even just being tangential to that yeah so well, it's be- mostly like making them functional so like we get the truck like we have an old sparkless mm-hmm. truck or he has an old sparkless truck and we just are installing shelves and putting toolboxes in and making places to keep things safe and make it workable for the one or two people that will be thrown onto set and have to grab things and make stuff happen quickly. Nice. Nice. I, pr- I probably should clarify. I only know like sort of what a, t- a grip truck is. And in case any listeners don't know what a grip truck is like at all, do you want to explain what a grip truck is? Yeah. A grip truck. Well, it's like, it's grip and lighting. So it's hmm. anything that holds lights, whether it be a stand or clamps or, um, scissor clips or and also the electrical of stingers and all the little doodads that make a film set able to have lights and function and flags and all the all the little doodads that make that nice work. and you said just a minute ago you said you had been working on like on film sets since you were 17 what made you want to get yeah. into that and like what's a typical day on set for you oh interesting um yeah i had always wanted to be a photographer. So I started off as a photo assistant Mm -hmm. and I just messaged one of my favorite photographers on Facebook. I like went on her, you know, page Mm -hmm. or whatever. I had started college when I was 17. So I was like trying to prove that I could make a living to my parents, you know, that this Mm -hmm. was a viable anyway. So this photographer brought me on. I worked with her for about a year 
and I, I show up, I make sure that camera batteries are charging, that cards are ready to be formatted, that everything is where it should be. And um, knowing the shot plan or helping set up lights or just making sure that I'm supporting. Like I'm normally in that like assistant role um, when I'm doing photo assisting or if I'm a photographer communicating with my assistant with the kind of support that I need and like um, what I need them to be either setting up light wise or tech wise or, and then I don't know, I play a lot of different roles on set. I'm a generalist, which is usually frowned upon. So um, why is that frowned upon? That seems odd. There's, you know, I think that the digital shift kind of made roles less like to be a film loader and have that be your only job versus now a film loader is usually also your camera assistant because it's digital Mm. or it's like, so there's been a lot of merging of roles. So I play a lot of different parts because I do photography and I work in lighting and I also will coordinate shoots like being in production and making sure, you know, doing all that stuff where I'm making sure everyone's fed. Have you filled out your lunch form? Um, and doing all those different things. Um, but I don't know. I like being a journalist because I love doing different things like that. I love being able to f- stretch myself in different ways. Yeah. yeah. I was just curious. I mean, I knew that the digital age that we are currently living in, I know it had just like shifted so much about the film industry. Mm. I didn't know that that was part of it. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. very interesting. And yeah. but I happen to know that you work mainly on, like on digital, not digital. Oh wow, I just messed up. You mainly work on like traditional film, correct? So for my photography, so like with the grip and electric and with the film business, all of that stuff is like the job side of being a creative. And then for my personal work, I shoot large format film. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot with Polaroid. I Frida's like been able to give me the space to like do all the weird things that I've been thinking about doing but haven't necessarily found a place for in my practice but like it's for me it's very separate like the work side of being a creative and the art side of being a creative I get that yeah and you brought up you shoot large format photography yeah and you're one of the few people like few photographers like around that can shoot small medium and large format photography which is pretty cool. I feel like there's a lot of us. I feel like there's a huge community and there's a lot of interest. Um, Cause it's just, I think that as soon as somebody tries doing it, they there's an allure to it. Like when you're looking through a large format camera, the image is upside down and flip backwards mm. and looking through the ground glass and you're looking straight through the camera and you're looking, it's, I don't know, it feels really raw and slow and like you're also hidden from your subject and then to communicate you have to like emerge and there's this separation whereas with a lot of like whether it be digital or smaller formats it feels like less of a barrier in between Mm -hmm. the photographer and the subject and I kind of like using this like giant camera as this like lens and you know debating a lot of whether when I take the photo if I'm looking at like when I click the shutter when I'm actually in the if I'm looking at my subject or if I I'll choose often to look away because it's this moment that's created between the subject and the camera that I've kind of set the conditions for I like that I like I like the metaphor of that I like that a lot the camera is definitely it's it's it has especially the bigger you go it just has more and more of a presence to it and 
do do different cameras like feel like they take on different lives for you I don't even know how to put it yeah definitely the way that I photograph with different cameras is completely different like Mm -hmm. like I'm a large format photographer but I would not bring a large format camera to most of my fashion shoots like that is the wrong tool for the wrong like I I the way that I shoot with large format is super slow and methodical and like I want to be able to have a dialogue and sometimes I'll talk to the people while I'm underneath the dark cloth and I don't know if it's true or not but it feels like it allows them to talk more to themselves than necessarily to me because I'm like asking questions or whatever it is and then um what I'll normally do is I'll watch them through the camera and then I'll tell them to hold because once they hold I make sure my focus is set I say no more moving because I have to load my film close my lens cock the shutter pull the dark slide take the picture and once that all happens, then the image is made. And this the process of it is one of my favorite things in the world. So how did you get into large format photography in the first place? Because I'm, from what I understand, and you say there's a large like community of people who yeah. practice the art, but like, yes, I don't, I can't imagine it's like as popular as it used to be. Yeah, it's definitely not. I mean, so when I was 18, I met Alan Barnes, who is an amazing wet plate photographer. And so all of that is normally large format, old plates, one of a kind, and it's an embrace of the chemistry and the like hand is so much a part of the making of it, the way that the plate is coated and processed and shot. And it's just, it's a much more visceral process. So I was always intrigued. And then um, I had a professor at Cal State Long Beach, Mark Rudell, who is one of my favorite professors and he is an amazing photographer who often shoots in large format and he has so many projects where he carried around his large format camera through the desert going on these walks and seeing all these things and like Chelsea I I just had so many professors that like I don't know the way there is a community I think of large format photographers and the slowness and the like care and the quality of a large format image is just so unique and yeah i just had a lot of role models i guess that i really looked up to well that's fantastic and i understand that you are of sorts a role model to some people at forecast because you along with farida started a workshop or um, a series of classes on yeah was it large format photography it was everything we did do large format but we also Mm -hmm. did cooking film like where you boil it and rub detergent on it and just start messing it up and the colors start shifting or um infrared photography like and a lot of these things that I was curious about like I would not call myself a master in any regards in any of these things but I had a laundry list of things that I just wanted to try and I wanted to explore it with other people and so Farida and I like I have a very technical background I spent a lot of my life working in labs, mixing the chemistry. So it's processing my own film. Like I, I just, Frida believes that I have a more hands-on process than a lot of people do. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I, I do know that my relationship with the chemistry side of it is um, in depth and has been, because I started photography in the darkroom when I was 15 at a free program at CalArts where they bust high school students in and they mentored and taught. And it was amazing. I really got an understanding of what it takes to be in the chemistry and mixing it and 
doing math in your head where I thought that photography had nothing to do with math or chemistry. Yeah, up until now, I thought photography had nothing to do with math and chemistry. And then you said it and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, the main shutter speeds are fractions of a second Mm -hmm. that are in relation to the speed of the sensitivity of your um, surface, your light sensitive surface, whether that be a plate of film speed or any uh, a paper and then the aperture and all of these three components to get the exposure or the effect that you're looking for it's it's so much more technical than you know my young self being like I want to be a photographer and then all of a sudden you have to do all the things that you thought you hated in school but yeah I mean I became a writer just because I didn't I wouldn't have to do math anymore so I can imagine <laughs> myself being a photographer in that case yeah but I mean I, there has to be things in writing too that's similar right like that all the technical stuff that isn't just like letting yourself be expressed and expressive but you know sure. all the stuff that I mean I know. have to like like I'll have to do like maybe a plot outline once in a while and that requires like me <laughs> to arrange stuff on a page but god forbid I do have to deal with any numbers at all <laughs> like page numbers yeah I, I write all my I don't like doing math and I I have all my dilutions marked with tape on my beakers and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I don't have to ever do the math again. And like, it's just, I just, I follow my little notes that I've made. Cause so I only had to do the math a few times. Uh, There's something else that Frida told me about you that was like Mm -hmm. caught my interest, like immediately you are part of the eco-sexual movement. Is it okay about that? Yeah. Um, I had an amazing professor at Santa Monica college, um, Mm -hmm. Amber Catherine, and we were talking about, ecological philosophy and the ways to get people interested in our like earth that is dying mm-hmm. or, or earth that is going to be inhabitable. It may not be dying. It is just going to change in a way that humans have affected things and the whole philosophy behind it being that like, if we, the way that we treat our mothers is largely disrespectful in general, I would say like we take, and we have expectations and we want to be cared for by our mothers and taken care of in a way that the earth is not there to do that for us. And if we shift our thinking about it to thinking about the earth as our lover and our partner and somebody that we are both infinitely excited about and aroused by and that the partnership is that we also have to do we have to put it in that work and it isn't this mother relationship where we are taking, but it is this reciprocal relationship where we are both receiving and giving in more of, and I think the romantic lens of it, it's just, it's really fun. And yeah. So I, Amber Catherine, we started our eco-sexual club on campus hmm. um, at Santa Monica college. And so when I saw in the ecosec or in the sustainability issue of forecast, um, when I saw that there was an ecosexual piece, I was like, "Please give me this." <laughs> so what happens like at an ecosexual club meeting? I ha- I have to wonder. We it's a lot of art. It's a lot of thinking about ways to be sustainable. It's about maybe writing poetry that talks about our you know new relationship with how we see something or. And how to talk about it with other people. I think that a big part of it is like, how do you get people to care? And how do you get people to like feel invested? And how can we reframe this thinking about 
our relationship with the earth into a way that is a love relationship. And how can we both freak people out? I think that there's some shock value to it, obviously, Mm -hmm. but there's also like sincerity. And that I think is first and foremost, Beth Stevens and Annie Sprinkle in Santa Cruz, who somewhat coined, there's some debate about that, but they, they are huge spearheads of the eco-sexual movement and they often have marriage ceremonies to the earth where there are people come and they dress up and they're in the forests of Santa Cruz and they speak to the bodies of water trees and the air and the leaves and all of these different things and they are professing their love and it's this um yeah I highly recommend their documentary that I, it's on YouTube, I think, still. It's um, Water Makes You Wet. Oh, and love the title. Yeah, and they're just really, I, I just, I really love the way that they do it. And, like, I think that's the documentary. There's two, and there's, I'm forgetting the title of the second one. But she, um, Beth Stevens is from the Appalachia Mountains mm. and big coal mining, big mountaintop removal place. And so the mountain lines are drastically changing. And I think that, and she went and she talked to old coal miners and as coal is being, you know, shifted away from these people are losing their livelihoods. And so how do you, but they're also these people who are coal mining, they are more involved with nature than most of us living in LA. Really? They have, a, like, well, they are there. They're mm-hmm. in it. They have a deep respect and understanding. They go fishing, they go camping. They have a different relationship with, nature than a lot of us and it isn't this black and white thing and they love nature too um and they also are fearing for their livelihood and it's this really complicated thing it's not easy to i think answer of like how do we how do we change our world to being in support of you know this ecological movement and sustainability and a love um rather than like a taking and seeing the earth not as a resource, but as like a partner and not as something that can be utilized or harnessed, but as something that is an entity that is fully great and good on their on its own. Well, I love, well, I love the fact that you brought up love. I didn't mean to be that corny about it. <laughs> this is, of course, the love issue for which uh, we are being interviewed. Uh, so I have to ask, how do you love like how and how would you like what advice would you give to someone who wants to love better like not just the earth but anyone or anything Mm. that's such a hard question i feel completely ill-equipped to talk about love i feel i when i when you mentioned in your email that you wanted to bring that up i was like oh my god i gotta do research i gotta i gotta think about love and i don't know how to love better i think i have a really grim outlook on it that's why i think i have a hard time on it well, that's okay. I, tell me about your outlook, grim as it may be. I think, unfortunately, like I have always believed um, Stendhal's theory of love, that if there's mm-hmm. seven stages to love, there's an initial seeing of an object or a person mm-hmm. that you long for. And you don't necessarily know this person or object. You just, you see it and it's beautiful and it's alluring. And you're like, you start manufacturing all these assumptions onto this object or person you're like they look like this so they must be like this person you start manufacturing all these ideas about who they are 
And then you get to know them and you're like, oh my God, I was right. This, this object or person, this is exactly what I thought you were. Like, I'm so excited. And as you get to know them more, there is doubt casted and you are suddenly shaken that all these ideas that you've come up with about this thing or person have not been true at all. And that moment of doubt is then followed fairly quickly by a reaffirmation like no 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 actually this is the person that i love like this they are they are who i think they are and then um there is a final breaking of the crystallization that's what stendhal calls it a crystallization he uses the metaphor of a twig mm-hmm. a twig that is cast in salt crystals that's sold at um like a fair and you buy it and you're like wow these crystals are so beautiful and as you carry around this twig you start realizing that the salt crystals start to fall off and all you're holding is a twig and I think that, like, I think I intellectualize it. I think that it's like to love is to like choose to be loving and to choose to receive love. And it's not, I mean, it is this overwhelming feeling as well, but it's for like a long, sustainable situation. It like you have to continue making the choice to like give and receive that love. And I think that that can be hard sometimes. And I think that it can be like exciting and um like constantly refreshed and also like lost and it's in this like cycle of with this constant ebb and flow i think it maybe it's just cuz i feel incredibly manic in it but um i feel like it's on a constant roller coaster of like however you choose to approach looking at the relationship yeah even, even twigs deserve love yeah yeah, I as I was saying it too, I was thinking about it. Like, what if we loved and found beauty in the twig, not for the crystals that were outside of it, but for the twig yeah. that was underneath it? We wouldn't be as shocked as when the salt crystals start to fall off. I guess if you go in yeah. realizing this is just a twig with salt crystals on it, it's not as shocking and it's not disappointing either. It's like, yeah, well, this is good too. Yeah, but the the changing of like how we see that thing whether it be because it lost its salt crystals or whatever, it's, it's hard to like accept, but you know, what's that corny thing that like to love somebody is to mourn a thousand versions. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that there's like this constant change, the like that maybe we, I I don't know that we are any essential self. So like to love somebody is always changing, you know, it's, um, it's changing with them. And, that like hopefully growing together definitely i think even still with true with the earth like (laughs) like to love the earth like zizek has this really great line where he's like in a trash dump and he's like people think that when they flush shit disappears but it ends up somewhere and it's like what if we had to love the earth covered in trash what if it wasn't these beautiful majestic landscapes and these beautiful ravines and rivers like what if we trash our earth can we still love it can we still like see that this is our earth now and that is our nature that we've now we've piled things on top of it that made it get ugly and gross, but at the same time, like it still is requiring of love. Yeah. That's beautiful. Who was this? You said Zizek. Yeah. Slap Savov Zizek, this Czech, um, very full mouthed man. He's great. Um, nice. And again, it's sad to think that the earth may become like that someday, but it's still our home. I think that the earth is in most places that way. And Mm -hmm. we are very lucky to feel sheltered from that. 
because we yeah. get to we get our trash pulled away from us we get mm-hmm. we are able to like discard in a way that we don't have to then deal with what we are discarding and it exists somewhere it is not gone and other people are processing it and dealing with it and like I, I think that it's when the majority of people start to have to deal with it is when things will be confronted in that way because right now we're really sheltered from it and true yeah you have any like parting thoughts like can i ask where are you right now because you're outside yeah i'm in my backyard it's a nice gloomy but very warm and humid day today in los angeles um it looks so pretty even just from that like small view of it yes my little my I lost my sunsail on the big winds, so there's no more shade back here. I know. Terrible things to keep on. But yeah. Um I love sitting out here. It's definitely the place to be. I don't see any houses like that around here. I wish I could go out there and just look at like different kinds of houses. You know, I love the San Fernando Valley. Um it's the I know most people from LA hate it, but it's, I was born and raised here. My parents were born and raised here, and I never want to leave. Uh, well, someday I really want to go. <laughs> it's not a fun place. That's that's why people hate it. It's not a not a good time. But neither is. is Middletown, Delaware. So I'll just say <laughs> one for the other. It sounds great. Well, Jack, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good <laughs> no, it's perfectly good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And so our time together for now is over. Our time together will come again. Now is the time for creation and exploration. The moon rises. The sun sets. I'm Sophie O, and this has been the Forecast Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>